MacCast, Sunday, February 12th, 2023. This episode of the MacCast is brought to you by ZocDoc. More on them later in the show. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is the show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How are you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast. Glad to be back here with you for another week of Apple news, hints, tips, tricks, all the goings-ons in the Apple and Mac community. How are you doing? I hope you are having a wonderful day, week, weekend, whatever it may be. Things are looking pretty good around here. It's actually warmed up a little bit, although just above freezing, I guess, is now warm for me. Big change from uh, from California, but we're getting used to it. We're settling in, uh, sitting here in the studio, looking over the show notes for this week. We don't have a ton of things to talk about, but there's some interesting stuff to get into. I'm going to talk about maybe some of the things that are coming next for iPhone. It's that time of year, right? We're starting to uh, get ready for iPhone in the fall. Yeah, it seems a long ways away, but it always seems to come quicker than you actually think. (laughs) It'll be here right around the corner. We've got HomePod 2 teardowns, uh, so we'll talk about the internals and some of the differences and that sort of thing. And then uh, potential new hardware in other areas, displays, Macs, computers, all that fun stuff. And that'll really round out the news for this week. And then we're going to get into a discussion about UPSs. Yeah, it's a tough topic for me, but I'm going to dig in. And something came up this week via email, and we'll talk about uninterruptible power supplies. And then I have a thing of the moment for you, a kind of cool new little toy I got for work, but I'm thinking about using it potentially for my Mac and iOS devices as well. And I'll talk about some of the limitations and why maybe you don't want to follow my lead on this one, but it should be a good show. So I say we just dive right in with Some information from 9to5Mac. They claim that their sources say that Apple wants to still get reverse charging in an iPhone. You may remember back, it was speculated that we might get reverse charging in the iPhone 14 Pro, but Apple just couldn't get it done in time or it just didn't work out or wasn't working the way that they wanted to. Ideal application for reverse wireless charging, the idea would be you could use your iPhone or your iPad or some other device to charge, say, your AirPods or your Apple Watch when you were on the go. I would find that actually very convenient, especially for my Apple Watch. Um, I've been trying to use it sleeping more, uh, so I wear it at night and I try and throw it on the charger in the morning usually while I'm kind of getting ready for things to get it charged back up, but sometimes I forget and then I'm over here in my office and my you know, Apple Watch charger is way far away. It'd be great to just be able to drop it right on to my phone. I mean, obviously the other solution here is pretty easy. Get a uh, Apple Watch charger for my office as well, which I've been thinking about doing. I just haven't pulled the trigger on it yet. So it's probably coming. But yeah, this would be a great solution for that. Now, the key, according to the piece, is that Apple wants to develop some kind of unique wireless power out firmware 
that would allow the operating system to manage the charging speed and control the heat dissipation and charging efficiency of uh, the whole system. So a big challenge when you're in something as small as an iPhone and yeah, you don't want a lot of heat building up. You know, it's, it's an interesting design challenge because wireless charging, as you may or may not know, does generate a lot of heat and, you know, heat's not the best thing for your iPhone. So I think just some big engineering challenges, probably why we didn't get it on the iPhone 14 pro, but we're thinking now maybe iPhone 15 pro, might have it. They say it would have kind of some cool animations, kind of like MagSafe does. So that would help guide users on how to use the feature and show that it's working and enabled and kicked in and that sort of stuff. So reverse wireless charging may be one of those uh, banner features of the iPhone 15 Pro coming this year. Now, more rumors coming from Barclays. They claim that Apple will move to solid-state buttons on iPhone 15 models in 2023. This is, of course, if you've been uh, listening to the MacCast all of last year, this has been a rumor that's been around from other sources, but Barclays kind of jumping in the fray here, further confirming that this is likely around the corner. The idea here would be there would be additional Taptic engines in the left side and right sides of the iPhone to control button presses. They're getting this information based on supply chain stuff. It looks like uh, Sirius Logic, who makes the Taptic engine for Apple, is getting additional orders or there's additional development going on. And uh, those Taptic engines are going to drive the physical button feel of the side buttons and the volume buttons. So Apple kind of sealing up the system. It should actually help with water and dust uh ratings and and make that all better so not having more holes or ports is always a uh, a good thing for especially splash and water protection so that could be coming this year and then they're also saying that the pro model could have a brighter 2500 nit display now this rumor came via shrimp apple pro on twitter so via a tweet this leaker's been hit or miss on his, on the leaks. I don't know if it's a him or her. I almost <laughs> gave them a gender. I don't know what gender a shrimp is. I guess fish. Uh, no. Uh, crustacean? Yeah, that's probably more accurate. But uh, yeah, so display analyst Ross Young chimed in uh, when this rumor came out and said he's not hearing these rumors of a brighter display. It's also, you know, been rumored that Apple would be looking into LED backlighting and all this other stuff. But right now, this one's a little bit on the fence. Brighter display, Apple often wants to improve display technology between generations. So it would make sense if they could pull it off that it would happen. But kind of a mixed rumor at this point, and we'll have to wait and see on that one. And then there also was another sketchy claim this week that Apple's USB-C implementation on the iPhone 15 models, again, you might remember that uh, big speculation this year that Apple's going to ditch Lightning on the iPhone finally and move to USB-C, which will be nice. Um, but this latest rumor claiming that uh, Apple wants to include an authentication integrated circuit in the system. So the idea here would be that they could keep the certification, the made-for-iPhone MFI certification and licensing program going uh, for Lightning because that generates revenue for Apple. It also helps ensure just the quality of the devices and uh, cables and all the things that you're connecting to your iPhone. So anybody who's ever seen the, hey, this 
this hardware is not supported by your device messaging. That's, you know, when you don't have the MFI. So this idea here is they'd have this authentication circuit and that would be able to help them control accessories and that sort of thing. Reason I'm saying this is a little bit sketchy is, as pointed out by many sources, none of Apple's current USB-C implementations on iPad devices have implemented such a chip. So it would be kind of odd for Apple to just bring that out for the iPhone suddenly uh, when they haven't been kind of enforcing it for their existing you know, iOS devices that are, uh, that have USB-C connectors. So we'll have to, again, wait and see what happens on that one. It it makes sense from a sort of business standpoint, from Apple's perspective, and I can see where the rumor might be coming from, but I have a feeling Apple's not going to, uh, to go that route this time, but that's just my gut instinct on that one. And then one other thing that was interesting this week, kind of related to iOS devices, more on the software side, is there seem to be some hints that Apple could be dropping their requirement that all iOS browsers be based on WebKit. So you can have a a third-party, quote-unquote, browser in iOS, but the current uh, rules from Apple state that you have to use the WebKit engine, basically the same engine that derives Safari. So you, if you've seen alternate browsers on iOS, there's not a whole lot of difference, at least not under the hood. And that has for years kind of caused a lot of people to throw out, you know, anti-competitive um, sentiment towards, you know, what Apple is doing, saying they're being anti-competitive, they're not being open. And as you know, over the past year or so, a lot of pressure has been heating up on Apple and others, antitrust pressure, especially in Europe, in the EU, in the UK, but also here in the States and, and within other countries. So thoughts here are that Apple might drop the requirement with this year's release of iOS 17. That would open up other vendors like Google and Mozilla to move over to their native engines. And there's already rumors and hints that they have been prepping for years, actually, for this day, uh, the Blink and Gecko engines, Blink for Google and Gecko for Mozilla, to get ready for uh, being able to kind of further differentiate their browsers on the iOS platform. So, you know, I think that will be a, a nice little change. Some people are saying that, you know, Safari is limiting performance or uh, WebKit rather. And, you know, as a web developer, we've noticed in recent years that Apple's sort of let Safari and WebKit languish a little bit. And, you know, it's falling into a realm where we joke at work, but only half joke that it's the new Internet Explorer. Uh, and I hate to say that. I really hate saying that because I love Safari and I think WebKit is awesome. But, you know, Apple needs to kind of step up. I think focus has been on other things in recent years and maybe they're falling behind. So I, I don't think this is a move uh, for that. I think this is purely Apple not wanting to uh, continue to face antitrust pressure, but we'll have to wait and see. Probably this would be an announcement at Worldwide Developer Conference, I would expect, if it comes to be. So maybe we'll find out in June if this is what really happens. 
As you likely know, the HomePod second generation is out and available. I talked about this on the last episode of the MacCast. It's not a whole lot different, at least from a design perspective, from the previous version. Internally, it does have some differences, and this week we started seeing teardowns of the HomePod 2. One outward physical difference is that uh, the display on top, rather than like the first generation model sort of sitting above the mesh fabric, is more like in the HomePod Mini. It kind of is inset into that. And while it technically, I think, has a smaller total surface area, sort of touch area, um, the display itself goes edge to edge. It's much larger, much more active uh, than the original one. The original one just kind of had a little light in the center. This one, the, the LED lighting goes all the way out to the edge. It looks actually really pretty nice. Um, but the big differences uh, apparently are internal. I already mentioned the fact that it has five tweeters instead of seven from the original and then the the far field microphones there were six in the original and there's just four in the new one all of the reviews sort of say that none of that makes a difference in terms of the sound quality or the sensitivity of the microphones i've actually read some reviews that even say that the mics the fewer mics on the new one are better Um, So that technology probably just better mics and it's working better. But internally uh, with the teardowns, after removing two layers of the mesh fabric, which are just kind of held on with uh, drawstrings. So basically you pry off the bottom plate uh, that the HomePod sits on and there's a little bit of glue on there, quite a bit of glue, actually, if you look at some of the teardowns, pop that off and then you can cut these drawstrings that allow you to or untie would probably be a better way if you want to put it back together. But pull these drawstrings and uh, you can take the mesh covering off. And then it's now possible through screws to separate the top and bottom halves of the main cylinder. I guess originally when I fixed it did the teardown of the Gen 1, they had a tough time getting into the original one and they ended up using, I think, a sonic cutter actually cutting it open. I think later it was discovered that there were some grommets or things hiding um, some screws. And so you can actually open up the top layer, uh, get in there and get to kind of the main cylinder. So you can pull both the top and bottom portions off, get the big woofer out. So a lot of the reviewers saying this one's much more accessible. I mean, not completely accessible because obviously you have to get through that mesh layer, um, but it does appear to be a lot more repairable. iFixit also noted that there seems to be a lot less glue. And uh, once you get on the inside, one interesting thing that was noted in the teardowns is there is a pretty large heat sink actually a really large heat sink on top of the audio chip and the belief there is that um, it exists because heat can actually distort sound and apple wants the homepod speaker to sound as good as possible they also probably need to dissipate some of the heat because of the new temperature and humidity sensors although Early reviews are saying that the temperature sensor in the full-size HomePod can be off by quite a few degrees, which is uh, too bad uh, to hear. And it likely is because of heat generated, I would imagine, inside the device. The humidity sensor seems to be much more accurate, so that's a good thing. But if you're looking for a, um, a really accurate temperature sensor, 
uh, you might want to go with a HomePod mini or a more dedicated uh, temperature sensor like the ones from Elgato, the, the Eve sensors, which are really pretty good. So just something to note there. Overall, they say the new model, again, is much more repairable than the original, so that's kind of good news. It has does have that removable power cord now that's actually removable. We talked about that in the last episode of the MacCast. So uh, that should make, you know, if you need to replace your power cable a little bit easier. And more importantly, you can actually run the cable more easily through, say, uh, you know, cable access points for, for audio devices and things like that. So if you want to hide your cables better, it'll make it a little bit easier to do that with the new HomePod. But overall, they sound uh, pretty great and they're getting great reviews. So I guess it's glad it's, it's a good thing that Apple brought it back. And then finally, in the news for this week, we have heard rumors for a while that uh, Apple might be looking to update or add a new display to their display lineup. This week, display analyst Ross, uh, Ross Young excuse me, told Mac Rumors that he is not seeing any signs of a new Apple display entering production, at least probably not this year. It was rumored that Apple could update the... Um, the cinema display to a 27 inch mini led backlit panel. Uh, the idea here would be Apple would bring the 120 Hertz promotion technology to the studio display along with that led backlighting. So bringing it a little bit closer to some of the specs of the pro display XDR. It's not clear if Apple does bring out a updated model, if it would just be an update to the existing studio display, or if it would be a model that would sit between this current studio display and the pro display XDR because the rumors seem to indicate it would be the same size. I would think it would be more of an update uh, rather than a replacement, but looks like at the moment, Apple is likely not going to have that new display out this year, so could be pushed into next year if it happens at all. For this year, though, Young does think that Apple is getting really close to an updated 15-inch MacBook Air. I guess I should say a new 15-inch MacBook Air because we just have the 13-inch model currently. He says that production on the panel is speculated to start toward the end of this month, which could indicate a release time around April for the new MacBook Air. Overall, it's likely to be the same design as the 13-inch M2 model, just with the, the larger display. You may remember that Ming-Chi Kuo had also speculated on a 15-inch model release, but he was simply referring to it as a MacBook with an M2 and possibly M2 Pro options. I guess we could also maybe get a MacBook Air with an M2 Pro, a 15-inch MacBook Air, but... To me, that seems like it might muddy up the lineup, you know, and while that would be a massively, <laughs> I think, appealing model, uh, I don't know what it would do to sales of, say, the 16-inch MacBook Pro and where pricing would fall. And, you know, anytime Apple starts adding in these additional models into the lineup, I think it can get a little bit confusing to consumers where they draw the line on, you know, which machine to pick up. But, you know, what do you think? Would you be excited for a 15-inch MacBook Pro or MacBook Air, rather? And do you think it would, would muddy the lineup? Shoot me some feedback, uh, maccast at gmail.com. And I guess that just leaves the 
poor 24-inch iMac sitting out there. What's going to happen with that model? Well, Mark Gurman says this week, unfortunately, if you're waiting for an M2 update, don't hold your breath. He doesn't think it's going to happen. He thinks that Apple will wait for the M3 before they update the 24-inch iMac, and it's not expected that the M3 chips will be here anytime soon probably the end of the year at the earliest but more likely early next year tsmc is expected to use their new three nanometer process for the m3 uh right now the m2 processor uses that next generation five nanometer process so it it's likely a little ways off uh one bit of maybe bright news is there's some speculation that maybe with the next update to the imac apple will bring back the 27 inch size But uh, again, that remains to be seen, and we might be waiting until next year to actually see that. But with that, that is going to do it for the news for this week. Before I move on, I do want to take a quick moment and thank my show sponsor, ZocDoc. You know, there's nothing worse than going to a doctor's appointment, expecting to be the center of attention, and then your doctor seems like they have better things to do or better places to be. I have been there, and it doesn't feel good when you're not feeling well, you want some attention, and the doctor seems like he just needs to rush off to his next appointment. And, you know, instead of listening to you intently, asking you how you feel and helping you you along, the doctor's there, they're checking the clock, looking to see how they can just move on to their next patient. On ZocTalk, you're going to find quality doctors who focus on you, listen to you, and prioritize your care. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, are available when you need them, and treat almost every condition under the sun. You'll have no more doctor roulette or scouring the internet for questionable reviews. With ZocDoc, you have a trusted guide to connect you to your favorite doctor who you haven't met yet. Millions of people use ZocDoc's free app to find and book a doctor in their neighborhood who is patient-reviewed and fits their needs and schedule just right. Go to ZocDoc.com slash MacCast and download the ZocDoc app for free and then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash MacCast, ZocDoc dot com slash MacCast, and a big thank you to ZocDoc for their support of the show. Let's get into trying to understand UPSs, uninterruptible power supplies. I had an email this week with some UPS related questions and um, it got me thinking, you know, I have a UPS for work. I probably need to get some for my personal equipment, especially now that I'm in an area that has a little bit more weather and they're confusing things to me, which is probably why I've never really pulled the trigger on them. I've recommended them to people. I've talked about them. It's probably time for me to, as they say, eat my own dog food. Is that is that the saying? I think it is. Um, and so I wanted to get into, you know, what are UPSs? What are they designed to do? How do you pick one? How do you figure it out? And I'm probably going to need your help with this because I think there's some of you in the community who are much more 
into this stuff, probably better experts than I am. I had to do a little bit of research and I still get confused on the power requirement stuff, which you'll hear me kind of fumble through here in a little bit. So I'm only human, but I'm going to try my best. Uh, so essentially, a UPS is a battery backup system designed ideally to do a couple things. It's a battery backup system for your generally electronics equipment, but you can use them for a number of things. The idea, though, really behind them is to provide power for a limited time, not not a long time, just enough time in case of a power outage to give you time to safely shut down whatever you're working on, to shut down your equipment, to avoid surges and that sort of thing, to be able to save files if you've got it hooked to a video game system, maybe you want to save your your current video game session or maybe you're in the middle of you know doing something online and you don't want to get knocked off line right when the power outage goes out right you'd be want to be able to send that email you were working on composing and then you can kind of shut everything down safely or maybe even run um internet in an emergency for a, a while longer so that's kind of one of the main ideas they also are designed to provide consistent power so that can eliminate Power, power fluctuations or noise, uh, which can cause problems with electronics in some cases. And they can also provide surge protection to protect against power spikes for, say, like a lightning storm or some other power surge. So they're generally a good idea to protect your sensitive computers and electronics equipment. And like I said, they can be handy to attach to your networking gear so you can stay up during a power outage for a brief amount of time. Uh, generally, they are only designed to provide limited emergency power. So think runtimes of minutes to maybe an hour or so, two at the max in general, unless you want to spend really a lot of money. So it's not like meant to be a generator, a backup generator, something like that. Uh, totally different needs. So these are really kind of emergency use things. And the thing that's always confused me about an uninterruptible power supply is how do you pick one? Determining the size and, and what's going to fit your needs. And so there are really a couple things to know. I think Probably the easiest way to figure out what you need is to be able to calculate the total wattage of all the things that you want to connect to the battery backup. So when you're shopping for them, a lot of them will list wattage, and that's kind of how much load it can support, like how many things you can connect to the battery, and it can still provide battery power too. And so we'll talk more about how to do that calculation and figure that stuff out in a second not as easy as it sounds. But uh, I wanted to get into some of the features and some of the things to think about when you're looking at a UPS. Um, there's technically three kinds, but really for most consumers, really only two things you need to work about or two kinds you need to really think about. There are standby versions and what are called line interactive versions. And standby 
uh, is the UPS sits there. It's got the battery. The battery's charged up, but it's in standby mode until the power goes out, and then it kind of kicks in. So there's kind of a little bit of a jolt. The line interactive version actually keeps the power flowing to the system through an inverter while also keeping the battery charged up. And the nice thing about that is that means they can provide power conditioning and they can switch over a lot faster when the power goes out within a, within a few milliseconds. It used to be that there was a big price discrepancy between standby and line interactive, but these days um, you're probably going to want to go with the line interactive versions because there's not much price difference. And because of it, you know, always flowing power through there, um, it's a lot easier on the battery. It can extend the life of the battery because again, this is a battery backup system. So it's got a battery inside there. Um, they're generally replaceable, but they're expensive. So they'll last a certain number of years and then you do have to, uh, replace or swap out the batteries. So just something to be aware of. But I would say the general rule is look for a line interactive UPS. It offers automatic voltage regulation, power conditioning, all that good stuff. And it, it, again, it's not going to cost you a whole lot more, if anything at all. Um, the other thing that you want with a UPS is something to deal with common voltage fluctuations. So again, that whole power conditioning. And there's a couple different scenarios that you want to uh, be protected from. Uh, surges. So surge protectors are generally built in. Um, and that will help you in case there's a brief spike in power. Um, you'll also want protection against sags. And that's where something like a large appliance kicks on and draws momentarily uh, power and sort of drops the power to your equipment. And then something that's unfortunately become more common these days, brownouts. And that's where the utility company will actually reduce voltage for an extended period of time to actually try to avoid blackouts in, in sort of peak energy usage. So you get a hot summer, everybody's kicking on their air conditioners. And especially when I was living in California, we'd have them quite frequently, you know, the utility company would just reduce voltage and that can be hard and not good for your equipment. So you want that nice, even flow of energy and power. And so the battery backup can kick in and help protect against these kinds of situations. And then another thing to know about with UPSs is uh, something about sine waves. And this has to do with how alternating current works. Basically, alternating current reverses its power flow smoothly 60 times per second. Now, with a UPS, this is something that it has to replicate and there's kind of two methods of doing that depending upon the unit. There is pure sine waves or simulated sine waves. And as you might imagine, pure is better, but it can add to the cost of the UPS. But you really probably want to go with pure because essentially, if you have devices attached to your UPS that have something called active power factor correction, PFC, um, they need to have that pure, smooth sine wave, not kind of the simulated fast on-off sine wave, you know, that has a, a high peak and then a 
it's actually kind of a square sine wave if you look at it. But um, it's common in uh, sensitive electronic devices to have PFC. And so you'll want that uh, that pure sine wave. So the easiest thing to do is just opt for a pure sine wave one because it's often hard to determine which devices have PFC. And so, again, I just wouldn't worry about it. I would look for a UPS that has pure sine wave. And then another thing with UPSs to consider, uh, all this before getting <laughs> getting to how to figure out your power needs, is the actual outlets that are on a UPS. Most UPSs will have plugs that are connected to the battery backup, and then usually also a set of plugs that offer just surge protection. So you want to make sure you get one with enough outlets on the battery side for the devices that you're planning on wanting to keep powered in the case of a power outage. So this is likely going to be your computer itself, um, maybe your monitors, hard drives. If you're like me and have sensitive audio equipment, you probably want that on the UPS so you can shut it down safely. Uh, so make sure you have enough plugs there and uh, to fit your needs. And then if you need additional just surge protected ones, then you can uh, look for that. Uh, it is not recommended that you connect power strips or surge protectors to the UPS battery itself or just to the UPS at all because, again, that can create fire hazards. So if you need multiple UPSs to meet your needs, and that might be a thing, uh, you can go that route. And then the other thing to think about with the outlets is the plug design that's on the UPS. A lot of them have tightly spaced plugs. So if a number of the devices that you're going to need to plug in have those big wall warts, you know, those big chunky things, make sure you get one that has the space you need. Of course, you probably could get little wall wart tamers, little short extension cords to kind of mitigate that, but just plan for that when you're uh, planning out your, you know, which UPS you want to buy. So those are all things to consider before figuring out, you know, how big a UPS am I going to need? What are my power needs? And here again is where I and I think many people get confused because it's a little bit confusing. So I'm going to do my best with my new limited knowledge about how this works to explain it. If I get something wrong, I know you have my back. You'll chime in with some feedback and let me know where things went wrong. But there are really kind of two separate power issues to consider. Um, the electrical load of all the devices that you're going to connect to the UPS. So, you know, what size you need uh, for those battery-backed outlets. And then the capacity of the internal battery on the UPS. So how long with that load, with the number of devices that you have plugged into the battery, how long can you run? Is it five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes? And how long do you want to be able to run is another consideration. Now, keep in mind, um, as I've been looking at this, price goes up dramatically uh, the longer you want to be able to run. So really keep in mind, the idea here is just, a quick few minutes to be able to shut your your machines down it's not meant to be like hey my power is going to be out for a day i want to be able to run my you know my imac for the whole time the power is out for that you're going to want to get something more like a dedicated generator if that's if that's your need but this is you know just emergency situation power use so don't expect to get a ton of uh, runtime out of your ups battery backup so what you need to do is 
and I think this is the easiest way to go about it, is figure out the total wattage, uh, you know, basically draw of everything that you're going to want plugged into that battery. You know, how many watts is everything going to use? And generally, you can find the numbers you're going to need either on the device power cord near the outlet or power supply. You might need to check the manual. Um, I know, for example, that my MacBook Pro, you know, takes 96 watts to charge. I don't think it needs all of that full 96 watts. But again, this is where it gets a little bit confusing. Um, so find the wattage if you can. Add up all those numbers to get the total wattage. And um, you can use that when you go looking for a UPS. If you don't have wattage and all you have is amps or amperes, uh, then what you're supposed to do is take that number and multiply it by 120 volts, at least here in the U.S. I think it's what you multiply by, I believe, would be dependent upon, you know, which power system you're on and, and what the voltage is. But here in the U.S., 120 volts, and then you will get the wattage. And, uh, again, here's where it gets a little bit confusing to me because apparently that formula is not technically 100% correct because that number calculates what is the apparent power. Uh, devices also have a power factor, which is a measure of the effectiveness with which the electrical device converts volt amps volt amperes into watts and that power factor number is generally a number between zero and one so to get the real power in watts you need to take the amps times the volts times the power factor from my research it sounds like generally computer electronics tend to have a power factor of around 0.6 to 0.7 so that's why i think like I was saying with my 96-watt MacBook Pro, I think what it actually requires to kind of keep it powered is actually a little bit lower because it's not drawing that full 96 watts all the time. So I think that 0.6, 0.7, basically 60% is going to get you to that number. But I figure if you use the real number, the apparent power number, you're probably overcalculating, which in the case of a UPS is likely a good thing because you're just going to actually end up with a little bit extra runtime. Um, so I think however you calculate it, it's not going to be too big of an issue. But once you have that number, that wattage number, um, you want to make sure that you get a UPS that has a wattage rating basically larger at that number or probably likely larger and that should get you covered. That is, hopefully, if the UPS you're looking at, whichever brand you're looking at, and there's kind of two major brands that I'm aware of, CyberPower and APC. Those are two common ones. Of course, there's other brands out there, but those are the ones I see most of the time. You hope that they have a wattage rating on their UPS. I think both those UPSs, I think both those brands do. Um, the other way they will rate UPSs is they'll give it a VA rating. And if that's the only number you have, then you can take that VA number, use the 0.6 rule to get the watts. So take the VA number, multiply by 0.6, and that will give you the wattage. And you can just match to that. 
So now you know how to figure out which EPS to get in terms of load. Then what comes next is runtime. And that really comes down to the size of the battery. Um, luckily, it seems to me like most of the UPS sites will either have a chart or a tool to help you calculate the runtime based on your wattage load for each UPS. And so you can just use that. For example, I was playing around on the APC site and you kind of can use a little tool, put in all of the wattages for all the things that you want to connect. And then it will show you the available models that will support that along with the estimated runtimes for each model and of course price. And as I mentioned, the price starts to go up pretty significantly uh, the longer runtime you want to get. So five minutes, 10 minutes are going to be mo your most affordable, probably in the $100, $200 price range. And then as you go and say you want 30 minutes of runtime, you're starting to look at $300, $400. And if you want hours, you're going to quickly move into the thousands of dollars. And it's more office level, you know, that type of equipment level gear. So <laughs> a lot of it's rack mounted and very large UPSs, large batteries, as you might imagine. So just be aware of that. But again, in most cases, you're going to want five to 10 minutes of battery runtime, just enough time to save out whatever you're working on, get things shut down safely and to protect your gear. That's the overall uh, plan. So that's kind of my understanding at this point of uh, how to look for find and and uh, what features to look for in a UPS. Like I said, I am a newbie to this. So I bet there's a lot of you who are very much experts probably work in the industry and have some great advice, tips and tricks and hints for us on uh, how to select and buy a UPS. So if you're that person, please shoot me an email or even better yet, send me an audio comment, share your thoughts. Let us know maccast at gmail.com. And then the last thing that I have for you uh, today is a thing of the moment. I bought a new little toy, a little thumb drive looking dongle called a YubiKey, specifically the YubiKey 5CI. And you might be saying, Adam, what is a YubiKey? It's actually a security device. Um, it is a little hardware device that can be used to generate a one-time use password for two-factor authentication in supported systems. It also supports logins using FIDO-based public private key pairs. What is FIDO? FIDO is the Fast Identity Online Alliance. That's an open industry alliance that was formed to, quote, help reduce the world's over-reliance on passwords. Basically, a group, they set standards and certifications and protocols for these little hardware key devices that you can use instead of passwords for logging in. In this case, uh, the reason I have YubiKeys in my life is for work. Uh, we use them for two-factor authentication, logging into systems, and things like that. And I've had, they come in a bunch of different form factors. Um, Yubico is kind of one of the main companies, but you can get YubiKeys from a number of different companies. The, the, the main thing is that it has the FIDO certifications. It's kind of really what you want to look for. Um, but you basically connect them to your computer either via USB or lightning or, you know, for your iOS devices, or they even can now do NFC 
um, and they will generate a one-time use password. And many of them, uh, like mine, have a little metal touch connection point that I think is capacitive. It's not a uh, it's not a biometric like fingerprint scanner. It's just thing that says activate device generate a code now so you kind of tap it it generates the the one-time use code and will even input it um, so it works as like an input device or basically a keyboard device to autofill uh, the numbers there are fingerprint biometric ones uh, now too but i think that's just to unlock and activate the device it just adds a layer of security to the i would assume code generation Again, not an expert on YubiKeys, but we use them at work. And um, I always just had a USB-A one. Now that I have more USB-C devices and, um, you know, iPhones and iPads and stuff like that, I wanted something that would work for both. So this uh, 5CI from Yubico actually has USB on USB-C on one side and lightning on the other. And it's really, really tiny has a hole in it so you can connect it to a keychain because they work a lot like physical keys, but for your electronics. So you always want to have it with you so you can actually plug it in. And they can be used, again, in place of one-time codes generated by things like apps like Google Authenticator or those codes that are sent to you over SMS or if you've ever logged into your Apple account with two-factor turned on, right? Apple pushes a code to all of your physical devices. So this can basically be used to replace that. Um, and it becomes that, you know, the thing you have part of the two-factor authentication. And uh, and it is, you know, more secure because it's not susceptible to, say, like a man-in-the-middle attack like a SMS code could be, right? So someone could clone your clone your your cell phone and intercept a key or a code sent over sms or text or something like that so this would be a physical device and um so i mainly got it for work but i also wanted to get it because i was thinking about trying out and playing around with uh, security keys with my apple devices so apple started supporting fido certified hardware keys for one-time password two-factor authentication with the release of iOS 16.3, iPadOS 16.3, and macOS Ventura 13.2. And the reason I say I'm considering it is because there are some significant limits or concerns, considerations about switching away from Apple's, you know, uh, code number two-factor authentication where they just push you a code over to the hardware keys. And one of the first ones is uh, Apple does require that you set up two FIDO certified security keys. You can add up to six keys, but they do require that you set up two. And I believe this is in case you lose one, because if you lose your security keys and you lose all your trusted devices, like your iPhone, iPad, um, you could be completely locked out of your uh, iCloud account or your accounts permanently. And Apple can't help you recover that stuff and you can't get it back. And so, you know, they don't want that to happen. So they do make you set up two, uh, two keys. 
Another thing is all your devices have to be able to support the hardware keys. So you need to have iOS 16.3, iPadOS 16.3, or macOS Ventura 13.2 on all of your devices that log in with your Apple ID. So if you have older devices that don't support it, just something to be aware of. Um, you need to have two-factor authentication set up for your Apple ID. I think that kind of makes sense. Uh, you do need to be using modern browsers that support the use of hardware security keys. And um, if you're signing into an Apple Watch, uh, an Apple TV, or HomePods, it is going to require that you have an iPhone or iPad with the right software, the right operating system to support security keys, because that's where you're going to be prompted um, to enter the security key or put in your, your YubiKey or basically, you know, scan it with NFC if you have an NFC key. So those are some pretty big limitations. There's also some situations where it just will not work. So you can't sign into iCloud for Windows using a security key. You can't sign into older devices that can't be updated to uh, an operating system that supports security keys. Um, if you use child accounts or have child accounts or managed iCloud accounts, those are not supported with hardware keys currently. And um, for Apple Watches that are paired with a family member's iPhones, iPhone rather, those aren't supported. So to use security keys with that, you have to set up the watch with your own iPhone first. So again, some pretty big limitations. My biggest concern would be um, losing the keys or losing access. What's not clear to me, and I'm still doing a little bit more research on this, is if uh, you don't have your hardware key with you. So if you set this up and you say, leave your YubiKey at home and need to log in, does it still fall back? I think it will likely still fall back to the security code if you want. I don't know if that can be enabled or disabled. I kind of read through and seen some how-tos from different websites out there, and that hasn't been made clear to me. So I might just have to try it for myself. If you tried it out and you actually know, let me know, maccast.gmail.com. But yeah, this YubiKey is pretty cool. Like I said, there's also NFC ones, and I did, did consider getting that, um, but I like having the physical lightning connector on it. Um, so you can find more information on it. I'll have a link to it in the show notes at matcast.com. But that is my thing of the moment for this week, uh, YubiKey 5CI. And with that, that is going to do it for the show for this week. Uh, thank you for hanging out with me. Uh, before I leave you, I'd like to thank a couple show supporters. Bandwidth for the MacCast is provided by Cashfly. You can find them at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. And all advertising on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. You will find them at BackbeatMedia.com. As always, I love hearing from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to MacCast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline. That phone number is 281-622-4269, 281-MAC-IM9. You can leave a voicemail there. If you want to, if you need show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you can visit the MacCast website. That's at maccast.com. And finally, if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash MacCast. You can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the MacCast, or find me on Instagram, just MacCast on Instagram. But that will do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon. Yeah.